0: All right, hello, and welcome to another edition of Raven Conversations. I'm your host, Jason Kreiss, from the Public Affairs Office on Camp Murray. I want to start off by saying thank you. I've been getting some feedback about the podcast by some of you, and I want you to know that, good or bad, I will take them all into consideration. I want to make this podcast better and better every time, and know that your opinions matter and will help improve the quality of the show. I've also gotten some ideas from some of you that I would like to incorporate into future episodes. One such idea was to get some folks who are deployed downrange to talk about their experiences. So hopefully one, one of these days we can uh, make that happen. So thank you for the feedback and the ideas. Keep them coming. And feel free to shoot me an email anytime. Okay, so on today's show, Sarah Morris and I talk with none other than the big boss himself, Major General Brett Doherty. General doherty has been in the organization for many years. He served on active duty as an armor officer as part of the Air Cavalry, flying attack helicopters. He then transitioned to aviation when the branch was created. After his stint on active duty, he joined the Washington National Guard, and the rest is history. I won't go too much into his biography. I'll let him speak for himself. During our conversation, we talk about some of the big ticket items that he's working on. Some of those include the modernization of our force, firefighting initiatives that will help make us more effective when fighting wildfires, and our footprint in the Pacific as we move forward with the state partnership program with Thailand and Malaysia. Later on that day, as I was editing this podcast, he popped into our office and wanted to make sure I mention a couple of things that he wanted to talk about but didn't get to in the podcast recording. So I'm going to do that right now. He is currently advocating state legislator for a couple of very important bills. One of the bills would provide full tuition for both soldiers and airmen who are working on their bachelor's degree at any state, college, or university. The other bill would get soldiers and airmen paid at the same rate as Department of Natural Resources employees who perform the very same duties. He pointed out that a number of other states offer education benefits similar to the ones he's advocating for here in Washington. I don't know about you, but those are some pretty valuable benefits that he's working on, and... Hopefully soon that we can have those benefits come to fruition. All right, so without further delay, here is our conversation with Major General Brett Daugherty. Um. Yeah, so just to, to get started, I, I, I'm hoping people can get a, a good idea of you as a person You know, that, that's in charge of our organization and just to have the lowest ranking people to, to, to know who you are and, okay. and the stuff that you're doing for the organization so okay cool uh,
1: thanks for for doing this I really appreciate it yeah I'm glad to, glad to be here and uh, glad to talk with you And I wanna thank everybody for for being in our guard number one uh, that's at the top of my list of things I'm kinda of concerned about right now yeah
0: um, so I thought we'd start with just like a brief Briefly, go over your your career. Like, uh, bring us up to speed
1: on uh, on your career, I guess. You mean how I got to this point, or uh,
0: just like like some like where you, where you went, uh, where, where, where educated, where have you been stationed before? Yeah, where you grew up.
1: Okay, well, I'm I'm a local kid here, uh, not a kid anymore, but uh, I grew up here in, in the state of Washington in Federal Way, and uh, it's actually where I live now, um, still in Federal Way. I swore I was never gonna live in Federal Way, but when I was still in the active army in my last uh, active assignment, my wife was expecting our daughter, and uh, so she had to go to Madigan for for medical appointments, and I was assigned to ROTC uh, back at Seattle University, where I graduated from, and so I had to drive to Seattle every day, and when you look at the map, you know, Federal Way was right in the middle, and uh, so we, we bought a little house there, and, and we've been there for, gosh, 33 years now. But uh, So I kind of went full circle with the Army. Um, I attended Seattle University on an ROTC scholarship, and uh, which was great because I had virtually no money for college. I had uh, gone through high school flipping burgers at Jack in the Box and uh, working as a groundskeeper at our church and trying to save up money. Um, but... Uh, but we did not come from a wealthy family. My, my dad uh, was a, a bowling worker, worked for bowling for 30 years, um, but didn't have a huge amount of money to pay for our private school college education. And uh, so Army ROTC really, really opened up a lot of doors for me. Uh, so I got that scholarship and uh, then was uh, commissioned um, into the armor branch initially uh, out of ROTC. I uh, had a regular army commission and uh, went off to beautiful Fort Knox there. Uh, My and, husband's uh, armor. So. All right, yeah. Well, I really enjoyed it. But, you know, about the time we threw the both uh, tracks off of our M60 tank out in the mud, <laughs> I realized I was really happy I had orders to go to flight school. And, uh, and I, I had a great tank crew there. Uh, it was a bunch of other lieutenants uh, and all of us except one were going to flight school. And we used to drive our tank instructor kind of crazy because we'd we'd turn the turret as fast as it would go you know <laughs> trying to get up enough rpm to hover the tank and he, he never really appreciated our humor but uh, so was
0: it a was it a uh, a decision of yours to to re- rebranch it, or
1: well aviation wasn't even a branch at the time so i i always knew that i wanted to fly attack helicopters and, of the uh, air cav yeah mm-hmm, yeah so I, that's that's what i wanted to do was air cav fly at that time, it was Cobra attack helicopters, and uh, so to do that, you really needed to be needed to be branched armor. Um, if you okay. were branched infantry, you'd you'd more than likely have been a Huey pilot, um, and if you were branched transportation corps, you would have been a Chinook guy. But there was no aviation branch uh, way back in 1980 uh, when I first went into the army. Um, so. So I got to see the birth of aviation branch uh, when I was in my first army assignment at Fort Hood uh, in the seven of the 17th Cav um, and uh, so we had to choose if we would stay with our armor branch or or go with this new aviation branch and of course all of us opted to do that but, but so that, that was how I started out uh, in the active army for nine years uh, spent a lot of time in you know, beautiful Fort Knox, Fort Rucker, Fort Hood uh, with the 7th to 17th Cav, then back to Knox for the advanced course, and I was really glad I got to do that. Uh, Most of my uh, peers went to the very first aviation aviation advanced course, and they were just getting it going. It wasn't really a very good course, Um, but the armor course was really great, so I got a chance to kind of go back and reblue myself in, in, uh, in the ground branch and I think that helped me later in my career um, so uh, after that I was off to ROTC and I thought oh great I'm going to be an ROTC instructor and, and I was really excited about that back at my alma mater and uh, I, was, I was really young and I looked really young it's hard to believe now but uh, I, look, I looked like I was about 12 years old when I was a captain and they said, "Ah, oh, we don't know about putting you on campus, man. You're you're a hometown guy. We're gonna we're gonna turn you into a recruiter." And uh, so I had the job of recruiting, uh, basically for all the ROTC programs and West Point, um, for the scholarship program and uh, ROTC and West Point. And so I got to travel around every high school two times a year, talk to a lot of people, and. Uh, Anyway, put a lot of folks into, into the Army, I believe. and uh, But it, I was really glad I got that experience too because it really helped me understand the difficulty of being a recruiter. And uh, so I know when our recruiters are struggling, I fully understand what that's all about. It wasn't a popular time to be in the Army. I used to have things thrown at me. It was still kind of the post-Vietnam craziness going on even in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was a tough time to, to be in that field, but... Uh, I enjoyed doing that and at uh, at that point the army was talking about sending me off to Korea unaccompanied and uh, I was really kind of back home we had two kids by then um, they weren't really excited about me heading to Korea all by myself for a year and, uh, and plus at that time the cold war was really on the outs you could see you could see it the wall had not come down quite yet this was 1989 uh, but clearly the Cold War was, was about over and I could see massive cuts coming to the military and I thought, well, this is probably a pretty good time to make a move. And uh, So that's when I, I went ahead and left the active army and, and uh, got into the Guard. And uh, So that's how, I, that's how I got to this point. Um, and then from there I spent uh, most of my career in the Guard uh, within the aviation community. Um, flew OH-58s uh, when we had those aircraft here primarily. Um, was the XO of the attack battalion and then actually was the last commander of our attack battalion here in the state as we transitioned uh, into uh, getting uh, Blackhawks and Chinooks and kinda redid the whole aviation uh, force structure so I got to do that um, and then of course uh, from there it was uh, up to aviation brigade um, uh, things were going great there and then of course the war on, on terror popped up 9-11 happened and uh, so I got a phone call one night telling me uh, they needed me to volunteer for a uh, for a mission. Uh, It was going to be the first uh, mobilization of the National Guard after 9-11 on Title 10. And uh, so I volunteered and uh, wound up uh, having a task force of 75 soldiers up on the northern border and we worked directly for Customs Border Patrol and INS, uh, Immigration and Naturalization Service at the time and really tried to help them secure our northern border. And uh, so that was a very unique experience.
0: Okay. I think I recall seeing
1: pictures in our archives of that
0: and seeing a picture of um, wait, was it, uh, yeah, our previous General Lohenberg. Yeah, sure. There were some pictures of him and I think I saw pictures of you too. Yeah,
1: yeah. General Lohenberg came up to visit us a couple of times and that was really where I first got to know him, Mm -hmm. um, you know, other than just meeting him randomly you know 20 years before but uh, um, yeah so I worked uh, I worked directly for Fifth Army uh, at the time Uh, but in reality we worked for the TAG and uh, it was just kind of a it was my first experience with having having two bosses one title 10 and one one uh, title 32 and trying to figure out how to make all that work Uh, and and we actually had some success up there we did uh, we stopped a few people that were trying to sneak into the country uh, of Middle, Me- Middle Eastern origin um, and that was, that was pretty rewarding. Mostly we stopped a lot of drugs coming in. It was yeah. just daily drug bust up there on the border. And, uh, so, so that was my first uh, mobilization there and uh, came back from that went back to aviation. Um, served as the, uh, the XO of the 66th Aviation Brigade for a while there. And, uh, and then I was the Deputy Brigade Commander. I was prone to colonel and uh, General Kelly was my boss at the time, and he, he had two jobs. He was the commander of the 66th Aviation Brigade, and he was also the chief of staff here uh, just just next door to this office. And, you know, the 81st Brigade was getting ready to go to Iraq, and I could see he was just really stressed out. And I was a teacher at the time, so I was teaching junior high school, 7th, 8th, and ninth grade, coaching football, wrestling, and track. Life was pretty good, but I felt I felt pretty... Concerned for General Kelly. So I just popped him a note from my classroom one day and I said, hey, don't forget I'm here to help you out. I'm your deputy. You know, if you need something done, just feel free to hand it off to me and I'll I'll pick it up and run with it for you. And I got a one-word email response back from General Kelly, Roger. I thought, okay, well, he's busy. You know, he's busy. And about half an hour later the secretary walked into my classroom with orders in her hand <laughs> she wow. says, what she said you're being mobilized again and uh evidently general kelly took my offer to heart he, and uh, he said yeah i need some help uh, with the the rear detachment of the 81st brigade and they really had no rear detachment commander they just had this massive humanity and leftover equipment piled up over at Fort Lewis. And uh, so that was my second MOBE, was really trying to organize um, the rear detachment for the 81st during their first deployment. Mm So the 2003 to 2005? That's right, yeah. So so I was over there from 2004 to 2005. um, And we had, we moved around. We had several different buildings and barracks and sites that we moved to at uh, Joint Base Lewis-McChord. but anyway, we we basically received back from theater about 600 people who were, were injured or wounded or what have you. And then uh, we we had to train our own replacements. So we trained and shipped about 600 replacements. So the 81st Brigade was one of the only units that was able to maintain their combat strength at near 100% during, during their entire deployment. And uh, so we just had to make things up on the fly. This was before the Army had figured out how to do replacement operations, how to do medical hold operations. Um, really, how to mobilize the National Guard, and so I learned a ton uh, doing that. And plus, I got I got exposed to the 81st Brigade and all the different battalions and, and units there. Right. So, so that was a that was a pretty pivotal moment. Most aviators do not like to leave aviation, and. Uh, yeah, and I, w- I was one of those guys. I, I was not really crazy about, you know, moving up to Blaine for six months, and, and, uh, but I'm glad I did that. I, I learned a ton. And I wasn't really nuts about getting assigned to the 81st Brigade and leaving aviation, uh, but I learned a, an amazing amount during, during that assignment. Um, and then when I came, got off of that assignment, they put me in command of the 205th, which was something entirely different. And uh, I really wanted to go back to aviation, <laughs> but they, they, needed, they needed an RTI commander. And I said, OK, what the heck, I'll do that. And, uh, and once again, so I got exposed to the 205th and, and their you know, very important mission. And uh, so I really enjoyed that. And, but what, that, what all that did um, was kind of set me up for uh, being a pretty strong candidate to become the ATAG. Uh, because now I had knowledge of aviation, of the 81st, the 205th, About the only place I hadn't landed was in Troop Command, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'd also become the uh, full-time CFMO Uh, right after that. I came off of the 81st Brigade deployment, Mm -hmm. and uh, so that gave me background in fiscal law, and how to to manage money, and all the projects we had going on within the Army Guard, so it really set me up to become the next ATAG. And uh, so, that was my next move. Uh, I was up here to be the A tag for three years. And um, uh, timing is everything. I tell everybody, all of our colonels are exceptionally bright, talented individuals. Any one of them could do the job of A tag and do the job of tag. It really, it's really all about timing and being in the right place at the right time with the right experience. And for me, it just, it, it just opened up. And. You know the TAG position became available right as I was primed for it, and then General Lohenberg, uh hit maximum age to retire and and uh, retired, and and uh, I was one of two candidates to be interviewed for TAG, and uh, so that that was. Gosh, coming up on seven years ago, uh, and so uh, there you go. That's my that's my story.
0: And and I was there too. I was at the uh, the announcement. Uh, oh, when Governor uh, Gregoire announced it. Uh, uh, can you take us back to that that time? Did did you know beforehand that you would be selected, or was oh, it gosh, a surprise? Yeah. No, it was it was a
1: shock. <laughs> it wasn't a surprise. <laughs> it was a shock. You know, I I, I tell everybody this. Um, I I never. I always wanted to be a soldier uh, when I was a kid, I, that was always on my list, I always wanted to be a soldier, um, I always wanted to fly, and th- those were the two things that I wanted to accomplish, and and uh, so for me everything after becoming a soldier and becoming a pilot, it's all just gravy, you know, and so I never I never really set as a goal, hey I'm going to be the Adjutant General of the National Guard in Washington, it was, it was just never something that was on my mind as a remote possibility. Um, and like I said, things just kind of unfolded, and I tried very hard to uh, do a good job with whatever assignment I was given. If I was asked to volunteer for something, I did. And and I just tried to learn every place that I went, and to prepare myself for any opportunities that might present themselves. Um, and that's really how I became the TAG. Uh, I went down and uh, it was it was kind of a an intimidating process you have to go on an interview before a big big panel of members of the governor's cabinet and they pepper you with questions for about an hour and uh, so you you really had i had to study up and make sure that i knew the army guard inside and out um, but i wasn't really all that familiar with the air guard and uh, certainly you know emergency management i'd work with them on domestic responses but I wasn't an emergency management expert in by anyone's imagination and so I studied up on that and and uh, got through that first interview okay and then the second interview was just a conversation sitting in the governor's office with with Governor Gregoire and um, so we just had a we just had a chat and uh, but I you know I I looked at in fact I kind of considered myself to be an underdog really for that for being selected as TAG because you know, General Lomberg was a very accomplished attorney, and and uh, and uh, Governor Gregoire uh, was an attorney, and a prior attorney general for the state, and my my main competition was General McGonigal, a great guy, and and he had a law degree, and uh, so I thought, well, you know, here I am with a masters in counseling, that's probably not going to help me too much in this, in this situation, so. Um, I was, when Governor Gregoire called me, I was, I was definitely surprised by, by her choice, yeah, pleasantly so. And what was going through your mind at, the, at that time, like
0: when, during the announcement?
1: Well, I was very, very excited because there were a lot of things that I wanted to work on and um, mm. I was just thinking of the, you know, the great possibility to really make some changes that would, I, I hoped, have a very positive impact on our organization and uh, so I was very excited to be able to kind of dive in and, and make some changes that I thought that we needed to make.
2: What are some of the changes that you were hoping to see made, and have you seen any of those uh, changes come to fruition during oh, your time?
1: Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, the main thing I wanted to accomplish right away uh, was to change our culture. And we, uh, up until that time, we, we were really in silos and, um, and, and distrustful of each other. Um, so the Air Guard stayed over in the Air Guard area, didn't want anything to do with the Army Guard, didn't want anything to do with any kind of state mission. The Army Guard just wanted to focus on the Army Guard and and really we were even further stovepiped within the Army Guard. So it was like 81st Brigade only wanted to deal with 81st Brigade stuff right. and aviation wanted to stay off by themselves and and, and then we had emergency management and and just speaking frankly emergency management at the time did not have a good relationship with with the rest of the department and uh, was very suspicious of people in uniform and thought we were trying to take over their operation and just all this bad blood and it was really because we were in these silos and never communicated with each other and never worked officially with each other and so i set out to really break down those silos and to get us to work together uh, in, in a joint and combined way. and, uh, and that, that took some real doing and uh, we had to overcome many years of this is the way we've always done things, um, but we have made significant progress in that area and i think we're working much better now uh, without those silos at least that's that's my perception
2: well and we talked to chief Allman, and she talked about how she tries to help you with that inclusiveness factor right. from the ground up talking to privates up to ncos sure. on on inclusiveness and diversity within oh, yeah. organizations as well
1: oh yeah it's it's important we uh, we we cannot survive in this day and age, without being serious about diversity, in all aspects of diversity. Um, Diversity of thought, diversity of experience, Um, everybody has got strengths. And one of the reasons I I keep pushing this idea of a lean culture um, is that it focuses on that. It's the idea that it's all of our organization. We all have knowledge, we all have experience. We all see better ways of doing things. And so I need people to feel empowered to take those great ideas and and run with them and make this a better organization and make this our organization. And part of that is being able to freely communicate in between all these different silos. You know, I mean, we're just kind of set up for it. I mean, we, we have these different organizations within one, agency and they're really... in different
2: languages mm-hmm. Oh,
1: absolutely yeah yeah so emergency management has got their own acronym city and and the air Air force does and the army does and and then we've got this youth academy out here um so we we're a very diverse organization just from mission set um and it takes a lot of work uh, to work to work through those differences and communicate and, and work together effectively so so we focused a lot on it. So an example, I mentioned the youth academy. So here we have this great program out there. That'd be a great podcast for. We we are <laughs> we okay. are
2: going to yes sir. We're actually
1: gonna yeah we're gonna get a couple of the uh, cadets together awesome.
0: with uh, also one of the cadre members and we'll just have like a roundtable discussion. Oh that'd be
1: really good. Yeah it's gonna be I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well so but. What I did with the Youth Academy was said, okay, look, you're training, you know, 300-some young people a year and sending them back to their communities. Why don't we make them our ambassadors of preparedness? Why don't we have them get, get trained in CERT, uh, community emergency response training? And so we, we train our cadets now. Uh, insert in community emergency response training and then task them with going back home and linking up with their local emergency management department and, and assisting them during times of crisis or to, at a very least helping get their own families and and neighborhoods prepared uh, to withstand an emergency domestically and so if we hadn't changed our way of viewing how we work together, that never would have happened. Youth Academy just would have continued doing the great work that they do with kids, emergency management would keep doing what they're doing with with emergency management, but but now we're able to you know be a multiplying effect really and have more people uh, helping out in the communities to get people prepared because we're working together. So the the folks from emergency management go out and do the training uh, for the the Youth Academy cadets and that's a really powerful thing. Um, So uh, I, I can give you another example as well, the, uh, as, as I mentioned, you know, for years the Air Guard just said, well, you know, we have a federal mission, we don't, we don't do anything domestically, that's the Army Guard's job. And, and I looked at it and said, you know, these are 2,000 of our best and brightest, sharpest people, we can't afford just to have that talent sitting on the sidelines, you know, we, we need to engage that talent pool. And uh, so I was very, very proud of the Air Guard. I mean, last year they had entire—they carried they carried the, the bulk of the load for firefighting last summer. And so they we've got entire Air Guard hand crews that are trained up that are out there that are fighting fires, and they love it. And they find it very rewarding to be able to contribute to their community that's in trouble. And uh, you know, doing these domestic ops is. It's kind of addicting. You get out there and um, you f- you realize it's so rewarding. People so much appreciate our help when they're when they're in a in a tight spot. And uh, so the Air Guard grabbed that by the horns and has you know trained up to fight fires. And uh, they're a full partner in everything that we do domestically. And uh, so that's another example of how we're working together, and uh, and it's really paying off. Um, the, the Army National Guard here in our state is so busy right now with the 81st transition to Striker. We're, we're in a strange period where we have a lot of mobilizations and deployments going on. And, and it's like we're just kind of tapped out a little bit on the Army Guard side of things. But because we have worked together as a team and we've involved the Air Guard, we can, we can kind of sort and say, OK, all these, all these soldiers and airmen are deploying. They're kind of off the table for doing Dom Ops. And here's here's who we have left in the state this year. These folks really kind of need to pick up the burden for responding to domestic ops. And and so we're doing that combined. It's both soldiers and airmen. And I'm confident that we're going to be able to meet our our federal mission and still take care of things here at home. Just because we're we're working together. So I got a quick question.
0: Um, yeah. you, being the adjutant general, I'm sure you have a lot of communications with other AGs around this uh, country. Yeah. Have you seen Have you seen and noticed any simil- similar similar Issues in other states where they've had to break down communication barriers like that.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know that. I don't know that everybody has uh, got the Air Guard, you know, doing DOM ops. Um, but there are some states that are doing it. We're, we're one of the only states that that train uh, hand crews, um, uh, firefighting teams that go out and fight fire on the ground. In, in the old days. Really? Uh, Not yeah, even California? Well, California does, but it's pretty much California and Washington, okay. and everybody else, it's like, yeah, well, if they need us, we'll send them to red card training, but what I've discovered <clears throat> is that uh, the rules for fighting fires has changed, and, you know, back in the big fire of 1994, we mobilized the entire National Guard, and it was basically, hey, go east, find a fire, and put it out, <laughs> and uh, we, we got red card qualified, DNR trained us in red card, but that was all we needed and then we could just go out and go after it. Well now that has entirely changed. Now if you just have a red card, you're pretty much relegated to uh, just doing mop up and just, just, you know, mop up, clean up, and you have to have a lot of supervisors from you know, professional firefighters from DNR or other firefighting organizations supervising you. And so, because of those rule changes, if you just have a red card, you're really not that much of an asset. And what happens to our state, repeatedly, is that uh, the rest of the country, especially California, catches on fire and they just drain all of the national resources for fighting fires. And so, by the time we catch on fire, there's nothing left. And so, we are truly up against it where there just aren't enough firefighters and so it's not enough just to have that red card we need to train hand crews and get the same training that dnr has and and really be more professional in our firefighting abilities and um, so so that's really where we are with you know involving the air guard and a lot of dom ops i'm not so sure that other states are doing that very same thing but certainly when you look at hurricane response right. and those types of things Air Guard is playing a very part role. Oh yeah, role, absolutely. You know, along along the lines of their military specialties. Are you in need of a job? Well, it's time to update
0: that resume. On November 14th from nine to noon, more than 70 businesses will be at the Armed Forces Reserve Center in Vancouver, Washington, looking for trustworthy service members just like you. Dress professionally, bring your resume, and be prepared to interview as representatives from industries like healthcare, construction, law enforcement, and government will be looking for talented people to fill their ranks. Call 360-735-4985 for all the details. That's 360 360- Be sure to follow us on social media. Stay up to date on all the cool events, stories, photos, and videos happening around the Washington National Guard. If you have a question, have a comment, or just want to say hi, send us a DM, PM, tweet at us, whatever, and we'll answer you. We also love to share and collaborate. Send us the photos or videos you take at Drill or AT and we'll tag you. Are you an active Instagrammer? Well, you might be a perfect candidate to take over our account. Send us a message and we'll set something up. To find us, do a search for WA National Guard. That's W-A National Guard and look for the blue check mark.
1: Washington is earthquake country. Are you prepared? Earthquakes can create a series of big waves called tsunamis. Do you know your evacuation routes or how long it takes for you to reach high ground safely? Learn how to protect yourself from a tsunami. Check with your local emergency manager or visit mill.wa.gov tsunami. Before disaster strikes, get two weeks ready. Make a plan. Build a kit. Become involved. Be a preparedness champion.
0: Could you give us a little insight into your, what, what do you do on a daily basis? Like, like, I see you travel a lot. Like what, I where, do. what kind of things are you, are you working on? You know, that's great. So,
1: here, so here's my story. I had, I got a phone call. I had to go with the governor to a, a fancy hotel in downtown Seattle, meet with the president of Chile. And uh, I'm having lunch with the president of Chile and, and her chief of staff looks at me and says, well, General, what's a typical day like for you? and she absolutely stumped me because I really don't have a typical day. Uh, I mean that's the amazing part about this job. I mean one day I I can be with the 141st and a KC-135 refueling F-15s out over the Pacific Ocean. Uh, The next day I could be with Jason here in Thailand uh, trying to do some international partnership and relationship building. Uh, I could be out with the 81st Brigade as they convert to strikers and get ready for NTC. Um, or I could be at a cabinet meeting with the governor, and, and the cabinet, we could be discussing, uh, you know, the security of, of Olympia or or the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake. Or I could be meeting with uh, emergency managers from, from local uh, com- communities or, or tribes and trying to help them get prepared for disasters. Uh, it There is such a wide uh, variety of things that we do, uh, mostly because of the uh, the diversity of our of our organization so it it it, it, it makes it difficult so you know I, i'm i'm an old guy i'm like i just turned 60 years old so i'm, I'm an ancient person i have to really work hard at, at physical fitness and staying in shape and and the craziness of this job makes it really difficult to get into a routine where you can know okay well at you know zero seven hundred hours every day i'm running five miles i mean it's It's just not that kind of a job. and uh, So there is an awful lot of travel, uh, overseas stuff, Thailand and Malaysia, we do do a lot of that. I'm back in DC an awful lot, Um, meeting with uh, leaders of the National Guard Bureau and fellow tags primarily. And we all have different committees that we serve on, which are additional meetings and travels that we go to. Um, I get back to uh, visit the members of our congressional delegation at least once a year and then I have the A tags, um, and Robert Azell from Emergency Management hit them the, the quarters that I'm not hitting them so that we're always on message with our congressional delegation. Um, and, uh, and then there's, you know, things that the governor has, has me doing as well. So uh, after Oso, we had the Blue Ribbon Commission on, on, on the Oso landslide, trying to figure out how the state could have been better prepared for that. Uh, after the big wildfires of 2015, we had a Blue Ribbon Traveling Roadshow Commission on, on wildfires and how to better deal with, uh, with the increasing fire threat. Um, so it, it's really wide and varied. Um, and, of course, then we got, we've got the Youth Academy. I, I at least try to get out there for every graduation, if nothing else, and uh, try to at least go to one of their dinners or something to that effect as well. So, so yeah, it's a pretty pretty busy uh, pretty busy existence.
2: What are some of your top priorities looking into the next year and like currently?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I've got a lot of priorities. You know, I remember I remember being a young lieutenant and being so frustrated that the commander couldn't figure out what the top priority was. and I was such an idiot. Right? Know. There's uh, so many. There are so many <laughs> top priorities and, and, and it's true, you know. Uh, everybody wants to try to pin you down to what's your top priority. And I honestly do not have a top priority. I can't. I don't have that luxury.
2: Right. Well, and there's got to be a lot of missions, right? That's so right. So, like everybody says, the mission. But when you're that's right. When you're the top guy for the state, that's a lot of missions.
1: That's a lot of missions, and they're all no fail. And uh, so, so whatever, <laughs> you know, I've got a lot of priorities uh, that we that we work. And sometimes it feels like you're juggling. You have all these priorities, and you have to juggle them and keep them all in the air. But you can really only focus on one or two at a time, and uh, that, that can lead to the, what we call the whack-a-mole syndrome. And, and that's something that I think is kind of unique to the National Guard because we're so thinly manned when it comes to full-time staffing, and yet we have all the demands and requirements that the active Army and Air Force have. And um, so trying to address everything that comes our way with such a f- small full-time staff um, it's not just me; it's the entire organization that is very challenged uh, by
2: it. I others, can relate you know, to that, that as way. an Army Reserve soldier. Sure, but you guys have the added pressure of the domestic operations, which we right. generally don't, unless they're escalated to a certain point. Right. So I, I would assume that that gets crazy, especially when that is something that takes precedence suddenly. Like you know, the wildfires are going to happen, but you right. don't know when they're going to happen, That's right. and you have to be prepared all the time. That,
1: that's right. And so you just touched on one of my top priorities, which is preparedness. And, and so um, we've we spent a lot of time working together to come up with our agency strategic plan. And it's on, it's on our website. I'd encourage everybody to, to take a look at it. And it's not a fluffy uh, propaganda kind of strategic plan. It's a real nuts and bolts. Hey, these are our goals. These are our objectives. And these are the things we're measuring to make sure we're making progress on them. And preparedness is right up there, but that's an all-encompassing area right. because it it includes things like getting the entire state ready to deal with the crushing Cascadia subduction zone earthquake that that we're in the window for, uh, being prepared for fires, uh, being prepared for any kind of other domestic response. I mean, who would have thought that we would have to respond to a deadly landslide? I mean, that just that was out of the blue. So, but. But the fundamentals are the same. Get get yourselves organized, get your skills, um, have confidence in your ability to respond, get the level of training that you need, and respond. Just get out there and do it. And uh, so, so preparedness encompasses a lot of things. But it also encompasses our military missions. Um, so our, our Army Guard and our Air Guard have to be prepared to deploy on short notice and with, with a relatively short amount of post-mobilization training, deploy and defend the country. And to do that, part of preparedness is our end strength, um, our medical readiness, our military specialty training. There's a lot that goes into uh, All of the prepared. really
2: exciting stuff.
1: That's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and that, that takes me back to our whack-a-mole. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll focus on medical readiness, and we'll, we'll just beat that into submission, and everything will be looking great. And, uh, and then and then one person. The next, the, the next thing happens, and we have to shift fire and, and you know, focus on something else. Some other areas of our strategic plan that, that I focus on, um, uh, we've identified training in the Pacific as, as an area that we, that we want to focus on. And uh, so there we're primarily talking about um, our partnership program with both Thailand and now Malaysia and and really trying to be in the vanguard of building a strong relationship between Thailand and Malaysia and the United States. And so there's a, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot more at stake in those relationships just than, you know, teaching somebody how to put on a gas mask or how to do some first aid. It's really about uh, enhancing the United States' uh, ability to operate in the Pacific. And those are very important programs. And uh, so the more that we can get our soldiers and airmen out there training with our Thai and, and Malay counterparts, uh, the better it is for the United States. And um, I think also, the better it is for our soldiers and airmen. I and mean, over the last 17, coming on 18 years, we've sent thousands of soldiers and airmen over to the Middle East. and. You've been to Kuwait once, you've, you, you, you've kind of seen it, and uh, probably don't really get really excited about going back to Kuwait again. Um, and so I, I thought it'd be wonderful if we could enhance opportunities for our soldiers and airmen to go overseas in the Pacific, an entirely different environment, uh, having a, have a good rewarding experience over there, working with our Thai and Malay counterparts, uh, get some great training and experience, and really foster better relationships uh, for the United States. And so, so that's an area that we're we're focused on as well, is trying to strengthen that that partnership program. So there's there's a couple. Um, let's see, what else do I have in there? Modernization. Um, that that's a uh, a huge priority for us. We've we've had a modicum of success there. It took took me seven years to convince the Army to uh, convert the eighty first Brigade to Strikers, and uh, we finally declared victory on that. And and uh, they're. They fielded the equipment. They're training up on it. They're going to go to NTC and do a, I just know, a super job validating there. And then that's going to be followed up by some kind of utilization deployment. Still trying to figure out the location of that. But lead candidates right now are, are Poland uh, or somewhere out in the Pacific. I know General Brown wants them to go to Thailand. And so we're waiting for the Army to kind of sort that out.
0: So, as a, as a whole
1: brigade, they would go to? Which well, that's places, the other or, thing we're trying to sort out. Um, sometimes they're talking about just a brigade and the br- or I'm sorry, a battalion and the brigade headquarters. Other times they've been talking about a couple of battalions. So I haven't heard anybody mention the entire brigade yet. But that would be our preference. Would that would be, be a good. lot of
2: equipment. Okay. It would
1: be a huge move. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It would be a huge move. But the whole idea behind Pacific training is to give folks an opportunity to go somewhere, have a great experience. Um, see a, a different part of the world, meet some great people, uh, and then bring all that experience back home with them. Right. So we're working on that too. Nice. Um,
2: I've got one more if you want it before yeah, you the finish one finishing question. No, yeah. So we talked about preparedness, which I think is great. And when I went through new employment orientation and we learned about two weeks ready and all of that stuff, that was really interesting to me. Right. um, Because I had no idea about the Cascadian subduction zone or anything. And I had been to Fort Lewis as a cadet in 2007. Okay. And we didn't have any information on that. And when I was talking to my husband about it, who had just gone through in processing at Fort Lewis, he was in total surprise because they also don't give any information to the soldiers in processing there. And I just wondered if there was any thought in coordinating, like, information into the active Army or active Air Force folks here that maybe aren't getting that because they don't have what we have, which is the Emergency Management Division who has all this great information. And if there's any, like, interest in sharing that because... I mean, I think it's important that they know that if something happened, you know, JBLM's going to be messed up. (laughs) Um, And that's a, it's a huge, a huge group of of people. It is. And uh, I just thought it was really interesting. And I just didn't know if you knew that at all or if there was any um, thought about trying to give them information.
1: Yeah, well, we do. Okay. And uh, the the problem Having lived this, and, and both my kids are in the active army, and, uh, and my son-in-law, I mean, we're we're an, we're an army family. I I know how this works. It's a moving target. So so we'll educate the, everybody over there at JBLM about the Cascadia Subduction Zone earthquake. They participate in the huge uh, exercise all move we had away. in 2016, and that's right. And then and we're feeling pretty good. Hey, these guys are squared away, and. And they've got their own emergency management department made up of GS uh, civilians over there, and so they work closely with our emergency management division on a regular basis. So, so they're informed. So
2: maybe they're just not tied in. That's right. With it, leadership, it's a moving
1: target of, of uh, leadership and soldiers that come and go, and um, so it 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 has to be a constant right engagement with them but but at, at the higher levels I mean certainly when General Lanza was the Corps commander and now General Valesky over there um, you know I've I've talked with them and they understand that if we have a Cascadia of event we're going to be calling for help and um, and they fully understand that and so um, there's a lot of capability there um, yes the, the, the question is how much of that capability is going to be operational after the ground quits shaking And buildings are done collapsing and how long will it take them to be able to roll out of the gate and do some immediate response Mm -hmm. and um, so they're they're aware that we would be calling to ask for some help um, if if that were to occur
2: I'm sure I just didn't know if there was I guess now I do know that there's an emergency management division there. Yeah, but they right. need to get in on that in processing.
1: Yeah, that's a great idea. That's a good suggestion would be to inform people coming here that
2: yeah because if the soldiers aren't too weak ready then that sort of that's right puts a huge degradation on
1: the, the service as a whole. That is exactly right. And, and not only that, but they under they need to understand that uh, the critical infrastructure that feeds joint base Lewis McCord, comes from out here and and so it used to be that Fort Lewis had their own power plant and and they were pretty well self-sufficient they generated their own electricity and all that business but not anymore and now it's Puget Sound Energy pumping in power over there and so when all these power lines go down they're going to be in the dark with the rest of us and they're going to have to you know overcome all that stuff and and be able to help us respond exactly well that that
2: helps me yeah (laughs) gladly
1: (laughs) All right, well, I think we
0: could bring this to a close. I would just want to ask a couple of questions that I don't don't know if you've ever got before. Okay, look forward to that. (laughs) What do you do in your spare time?
1: Oh, okay. Well, I don't have a lot of spare time. uh, That's pretty easy. Actually, I I have one week that I I just absolutely have set as off-limits for anything. In fact, my rule is, unless the President of the United States is coming here to see me personally during the first week of October, I am going elk hunting. And uh, so far, the President has not come here during the first week of October. And uh, so I really enjoy that, um, get, getting out in the woods and, and uh, doing some elk hunting, especially. Uh I'll make a feeble attempt at some deer hunting from time to time, but but I really really enjoy uh, getting out for that one week uh, and kind of depressurizing there with some hunting. You stay local and do that, or well, do you I actually, do you... actually go uh, to uh, an area over near Yakima. If you if you kind of drive past our Yakima Readiness Center and just keep going straight, it takes you right up into a state forest up there, and it's not what you envision when you think Yakima it's it's beautiful up there it's uh, it's very well wooded with uh, big pine trees and fir trees and nice. and it's just spectacular so yeah I just got back being from a, a week of being humbled by the elk up there again this year and uh, uh, but it, it it's just a great time I get together with a few friends and um, and uh, my son came up for this this hunt with us and uh, so I, I enjoy doing that and if time permits I also enjoy fishing and uh, I used to have this great network of all these friends that had boats, and I would go off, uh, off the coast and go halibut fishing and, and uh, oh, do a little salmon fishing and whatnot. All my friends sold their boats, now I'm, now I'm landlocked, but my wife refuses to let me buy a boat until I retire uh, because she's convinced it'll just sit out in the parking lot and never, never get used, and she's probably right. But, uh, but hunting and fishing and hiking, being outdoors is what I really enjoy. And We've, as a family, built a log cabin kind of near Lake Chelan, but it's not like where all the million-dollar homes are. We're, we're kind of up in the boonies, up in the mountains up there. And uh, But it's only, it's only about five miles down to the state park, and uh, so we enjoy spending time up there and uh, just kind of being out in nature a little bit. Nice. Yeah. I mean...
2: It's just so ugly here, you know. Right?
1: I'd hate being Stay away. Outside. <laughs> Don't move here. Stay away. Beautiful forest. Yeah, rains all the time.
2: Rains all the time. <laughs> all the time. It's never nice.
1: <laughs> I remember being stationed at Fort Hood and just craving yeah, green. I used to My husband was there oh, for man. 5 years. So, oh yeah.
2: Yes. But I'm from Minnesota. Okay. So yeah. I was like, it's so ugly here <laughs> in yeah. Fort Hood. It's is just nothing new. Yeah,
1: that's, uh, the, only, the only thing good about Fort Hood is it's a couple hours away from San Antonio. That's, yeah. that's about it. Mm. <laughs> uh, um,
0: all right. Last, last question. Okay. There, is there anything that people don't know about you? What's something unique or
1: that uh, not many people know?
2: Well... That I don't, you want them to know. Yeah, exactly. I don't
1: really... don't really have a lot of... Secrets. I, guess, I guess the main thing is people... You know, I remember being this way when I was a younger, a younger officer. People get paralyzed around a, around a general and they think, oh my God, this guy's a general, you know, he's got to be so mean. And, and I, what people don't really know about me is I'm just a nice guy and, and I'm just a normal person and um, that's just kind of how I operate. Um, I, I try not to let this position or this rank go to my head and um, I, I'm always a people-oriented person and I always I always try to treat people fairly and, and properly and um, I'm just a regular guy and uh, so when you see me, you don't you don't need to get all afraid and, you know, lock yourself up at a position of attention and all that kind of craziness. Um, just say hi. <laughs> you know, if we're outside, give me a salute and say hi. And uh, I'll be happy to talk with people. Thank you very much for
0: coming on the show. Yeah,
1: and great And taking, taking
0: a few minutes of your day.
1: Yeah, sure. Glad to do um, it. All right. All right. Thanks. Thanks, sir.